Greetings, heroes and Force users of all ages, and welcome back to Inside the Tauntaun, a podcast in the multiverse of fandom. As always, I'm Dino Nicandros, and uh, look, there's no easy way to, to put this, and I'm going to level with all of you. Um, Alyssa and Daniel, uh, several days ago, were taken hostage by the organization known as Spectre. There was a ransom put on their heads, an undisclosed amount. I don't feel comfortable disclosing it. Um, And I need to be honest with all of you, I decided not to pay it uh, because I needed to get a new backdrop so I could record self-tapes. And um, so the result of this decision is I'm going to carry on with this episode uh, alone. And I hope you all will forgive me for that. I hope Alyssa and Daniel will forgive me for that. No, the reality is uh, it's a busy time of year. And uh, the three of us couldn't come together this week uh, because... Finally, the world is opening back up, and Alyssa was working, and I've been working, and and same with Daniel, and then he went on a trip to Vegas, and so this weekend was just untenable. So you are left with me, and today I will be discussing the new James Bond film, No Time to Die, which just released in theaters. And this film is directed by Kerry Fukunaga, and it is written by Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, Kerry Fukunaga, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And by God, I'm a James Bond fan. And who you are or where you came from. I am Iron. Uh, I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. It smells like a new corn here. Inside the Tauntaun, this is our opening song. Alyssa, Tangentino, talking nerd stuff, come along. Inside the Tauntaun podcast. Please like and subscribe. So yeah, this is uh, this is very bizarre. Think sports radio here. Uh, I will be talking into the ether uh, about this James Bond film, and Alyssa and Daniel do send their regards and. It is very strange not having them as a sounding board this week, but uh, they gave me the blessing to go ahead with the James Bond episode. And uh, if this seems a little out of character for what we cover on this show, that is completely understandable. But the reality is, uh, this podcast has morphed, as you know, over the the, the past few months to incorporate more than than just Star Wars. But uh, even with Star Wars, the whole goal was to get to a greater understanding of what we loved about it and why it was impactful. And then that expanded into explorations in Marvel. And uh, quite honestly, when this movie finally was given its release date after a year and a half wait because of COVID, it, it dawned on me that you know James Bond was right there with Star Wars for me at the, uh, at the beginning of my entertainment consumption as a kid and I grew up with James Bond movies and 
this felt like a good opportunity to kind of explore why James Bond matters to me and why this film in particular is such a crucial cornerstone of not only everything that has come before, but what's going to happen into the future. And I don't mean that lightly. This movie quite literally changed everything. And think about this for a moment. I believe next year, 2022, is the 60th anniversary of the James Bond film series. And on this podcast, we've talked about two other very long-standing franchises, Star Wars and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and the James Bond film series has those beat by several decades. I mean, think about that. The one constant for the entire second half of the 20th century into the 21st century has been Bond. He's always been there. And I think that is a giant reason why I love it so much. Uh, I, I like to think of James Bond and the James Bond franchise as a time capsule. Each film is a time capsule and very much a product of the time in which it was made. And each is such an interesting reflection of the culture and the concerns of of each year these movies were made and uh, to a larger degree the decades in which they were made. And I think it's for that very reason, having that kind of cultural impact that they've, they've managed to stay relevant this long and that he, the, the characters con, has, has continually been reimagined and reintroduced and we don't blink an eye. We just accept that Bond is back and, and helping us solve the problems of the day. So, I mean, that's, that's probably the biggest reason why I love Bond, but really there's a nostalgic element that I don't want to overlook. My, my dad showed me many of these movies growing up, just as he introduced me to Star Wars and Indiana Jones. And uh, I, I think many of our listeners, and this is not all, but many, including Alyssa and Daniel, uh, we grew up with Pierce Brosnan as our James Bond. And he, of course, started his run in 1995 with GoldenEye. And if you remember GoldenEye, chances are you remember the video game that accompanied it on Nintendo 64, which completely revolutionized first-person shooters and completely revolutionized <laughs> sleepover parties. I mean, let's be honest. I, I, I don't know how many hours of sleep I lost playing that game well into the morning, blowing people's brains out on multiplayer. Uh, just, just the absolute best. Uh, but as I was saying, my dad really introduced the Bond series to me, I remember watching Goldfinger with him. I watch. I remember watching Thunderball at his father's house, my grandpa. And uh, in a way, these movies kind of reminded me of them, of of my dad and my grandpa. They they, they were globe trotters. My dad still is. And uh, I saw a little bit of James Bond in them. The the intrigue, the uh, the style, the the uh, intelligence, the smarts, um, and. Some of my fondest memories of watching movies were, were watching Bond films with them, and that has continued to this day. And really, but you know, my my love for Bond is is not unique. And uh, you ask any Bond fan what they like about Bond. Let's be honest: it's the cars, it's the gadgets, it's the women. And if they say it's not, they're lying. This has always been a big component. Um, the locations, the villains. I'm you know. Everybody on this podcast knows already that I'm a, a sympathizer with just the worst people. I'm not really. But I find them intriguing. And Bond villains are right at the top. 
you know, megalomaniacs. So great. Um, and of course, the music. I'm a big movie soundtrack guy, and, and there may not be a more iconic theme song or even more specifically guitar lick than the James Bond theme. And we have Monty Norman and John Barry and David Arnold and Thomas Newman and Hans Zimmer and uh, a couple of others to thank for this unbelievable catalog of James Bond movie music. And, of course, the theme songs, all recorded by the best of the best, a who's who of the best recording artists of all time. So roll all of that into one package, and you have something that is so unique and different than really any franchise or any film that has preceded or come after them. And uh, anyway, I'm really pleased I get to talk about James Bond today, and we have a new movie to discuss, No Time to Die, which is the capstone of the Daniel Craig era of James Bond, which you'll remember began in 2006 with Casino Royale, which to this day, I'm very biased, but to this day is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I think it ranks up there easily in the top three of the best Bond films of all time. And with that being said, it does beg the question, is Daniel Craig the best James Bond? Is he the best actor to have ever played James Bond? And hardcore Bond fans, if you're listening, and I count myself among them, obviously, you're probably put off by that because the default answer has to be Sean Connery. And we all think of Sean Connery as as Bond. Rightfully so. I mean, he originated it on screen and and his presence on, on, on screen is unforgettable. But I have to say, and it's subjective, it's a subjective opinion, but I think Daniel Craig is the most talented actor to have ever played the role. Is that different than being the best James Bond? Maybe. Maybe those are two different things. But I think Daniel Craig, at the very least, is the best actor to have ever played him. And even during some of the more uneven outings in his series, and he's done five, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Spectre, and No Time to Die. And out of those five, Quantum of Solace and Spectre kind of stick out as, uh, like I said, uneven. And uh, there's a great documentary on Apple TV that came out about a week ago to uh, celebrate the launch of the new movie. And it's really an expose. It's about an hour long on Daniel Craig's tenure as Bond. And you get explanations for why Quantum of Solace and Spectre kind of don't hit the same highs as Casino Royale and Skyfall. And I'll talk about, talk about No Time to Die in a minute. Um, but through, through all of the chaos that sometimes engulfed shooting, whether it was a writer's strike, uh, whether it wasn't having a script done when shooting began, oh, Daniel Craig's injuries, his physical injuries, he is such a stabilizing presence that you buy whatever happens on screen. You, you can nitpick plot and dialogue, but he sells everything so well, and he brings such an emotional presence to Bond that wasn't necessarily present in former iterations of the character. And as an actor, I uh, I really appreciate that he took such a legendary, mythological, at this point, character and 
reinvented him and reinvented him in a very captivating and deep way. Um, so by and large, yeah, I, D- Daniel Craig, <laughs> his era of Bond is sublime and and what he has done with the character. Um, and really, going back to Casino Royale for a moment and thinking about Bond films as representations of the time they were made, Casino Royale was coming off the heels of Die Another Day, which is the final Pierce Brosnan, Brosnan movie in, in 2002. And by all accounts, that movie jumped the shark a little bit in terms of believability. And I, I understand believability is a relative term, but it was out there. The giant space laser, gene therapy, you know, windsurfing on a giant tsunami. It 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 got a little much. And we all know what happened in 2001, uh, 9-11. And when it came to deciding where Bond needed to go after Die Another Day, the post-9-11 world kind of decided for the producers, and producers being Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson. And Casino Royale represents the post-9-11 world, and Daniel Craig represents the post-9-11 Bond a much much more hardened person, uh, somebody who's seen some stuff, as we all have, uh, to varying degrees. Yeah, but some of, the, some of the, and I don't mean it in a derogatory sense, some of the fluff fell away. And uh, it was a much more realistic, grounded bond. And uh, that, that has been the through line for, for these five films. Um, and beyond Bond, what the character of Bond, these five movies have really done a good job of of modernizing Bond. And what I mean by that is it's no secret that if you go back into the Bond canon, specifically with women, you'll find some of the attitudes are outdated. Again, a product of their time. And, I mean, Bond's, as I'll, I'll, I'll quote M, Judy Dench's M. In Goldeneye, well, I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War. I mean, that's that is James Bond. <laughs> that was the character Ian Fleming put down on the page all those years ago. Uh, he was a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, and very much a product of the Cold War. And what the Daniel Craig movies have done is is better explain it, not justify it necessarily, but uh, think about it. I mean, Bond is a womanizer. I mean, he sleeps with <laughs> almost every woman in every movie. Uh, and he's also a high-functioning al- alcoholic, all those martinis, the whiskeys, and so on and so forth. But what we get in, in Craig's characterization is an explanation that these are defense mechanisms. These are to cover insecurities. And you buy that. And it makes Bond almost a tragic figure, which is interesting, and you could debate whether that even needed to be done, but I, again, I think I think the path that pushes the character forward is best. So that's what I've really appreciated uh, about Craig's tenure. There's a running theme that kind of kickstarts No Time to Die, but it's picked up really from Casino Royale and the subsequent movies. Has the world passed James Bond by? And to a larger extent, has the world passed traditional espionage by with technological advances, drones and cyber hacking and 
is is it still necessary and even useful to put agents out into the field? And has Bond just become a relic? And Bond having to grapple with that reality and to prove his worth ups the stakes automatically in these movies, which is really great. And that takes me into to No Time to Die. I'll give you my overall impression, and then we can kind of break down characters and themes and locales and such. So No Time to Die, gosh, I think it's going to be really polarizing for diehard Bond fans. But I'll tell you, I fall in the camp of somebody who loved it. I really did. I loved No Time to Die. It is an ambitious movie. I, that's the best word I can think of. It's, it is... It tries and succeeds to really push Bond where he has never gone before as a character. And, uh, oh boy, do they go there. Uh, I appreciate the massive scope. I, 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 I really do appreciate how ambitious the producers got. And they threw everything, including the kitchen sink, at Daniel Craig's swan song. And he deserved it. He honestly did for the the amount of work and dedication he's put in the last 15 years. He deserved a movie that gave him all of the toys in the sandbox to play with. Uh, it, it packs emotionally high stakes, which have been a hallmark of Craig's movies. Uh, great character beats. Um, I really, I was explaining this to my parents after I saw it. And I, I do need to see it a second time. But after my first viewing, it really plays like a giant character drama with some shoot 'em up scenes in between. But when you normally think of a Bond movie, it's action sequence, action set piece, loosely tied together with, you know, with with character character beats and and scenes and dialogue. Uh, but this was very much the opposite. This was a a character drama with some absolutely kick-ass action. Um, and and maybe that's one of the drawbacks of it. I, the, the movie runs at two hours and 43 minutes, and it does feel a little bit bloated around the midsection, just a little bit. But I, I say that kind of thinking through the lens of just an, an everyday moviegoer. But as a Bond fan, give it all to me. I was a kid in a candy shop, and I saw it on IMAX, you know, the, the new laser IMAX screen, which if you can get your hands on a ticket to one of those theaters, please do it. Uh, this deserves to be seen on the biggest screen possible. Um, so A-plus on character development and character interactions, and I'll break down some of these a little bit uh, more specifically. From a cinematography standpoint, oh, man, this might be the most beautiful movie in this series and I've said that about a couple of the recent ones Skyfall was there Spectre actually had some amazing uh sequences um but No Time to Die might be the most beautiful Bond film ever made Uh, Linus Sandgren was the cinematographer and his compositions were um are mesmerizing the sense of scale and scope, uh, the action sequences, not only are they beautifully choreographed, you can actually see them. And what I mean by that is modern action films tend to 
work with the handheld cameras and you get the uh, shaky camera effect to, to kind of add that kind of disoriented, gritty nature to action fight sequences. But what you lose is like a sense of what the hell is actually going on. And this happened a couple times uh, in the recent Bond movies. But what I loved about this movie is I could see everything. I could see the car chases. I could see it all unfold in this giant tapestry. And you get a sense of where they are and how the environment impacts what they're doing. And uh, you take that for granted. And I I just think they knocked it out of the park. Uh, The landscapes are out of this world, whether it was Matera, whether it was Jamaica. Again, I'll talk about these specifically. Uh, The island at the end, the volcanic island. Um, Just such grandiose, beautiful, rich pictures uh, that are traditional to Bond movies, but just went up a level this time. Um, Big fan of, of the cinematography. I'll break down characters a bit. So I talked about Daniel Craig uh, at length. I think you already know how I felt about his Bond. What what happened in this movie with him that I appreciated so much is that some of the playfulness was allowed to to, to kind of creep in. We we've come to know Daniel Craig's Bond again as very hardened, very scarred, very tortured figure. But he he kind of enjoys himself this time around, even as things get worse for him. Some of those quips return, some of those James Bond puns and retorts. And uh, Daniel Craig has said a lot of the credit goes to Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who he personally requested to come on towards the end of the the writing process and right near the beginning of of shooting and into shooting to kind of uh, spruce up the script a little bit and, and give it a little more color and flavor and wit and she's obviously brilliant at that and and her fingerprints are all over Bond's character here and I mean that in a good way uh he's he's very clever you get to see Daniel Craig kind of tap into his dare I say Roger Moore uh persona a little bit and then then of course that is layered in with just an absolutely beautiful performance when it came to his relationship with Madeline Swan, played by Leia Sado. And they, of course, established this relationship in the last movie, Spectre, and Leia Sado was... Uh, Madeline Swan is the daughter of Spectre agent Mr. White. And their relationship, it it, it does serve as a mirror of, of Bond and Vesper from Casino Royale. Uh, what I absolutely loved about uh, how their relationship formed right at the beginning of the movie, you get a very profound discussion between the two of them about what it will take for their life to work together. And and Madeline says, I know you haven't forgiven Vesper for what she did to you, and I know you haven't forgotten her. I want you to go see her tomb. I literally want to want you to go see where she's buried, and I want you to go there and forgive her. And for the woman Bond is in love with to give him permission to go and get over somebody finally, be a human being, Let, you know, encourage Bond to be a human being. I, I don't know why that just struck me in particular. It's such a beautiful moment. Um, and of course, in return, she says she'll spill the beans on all, all, all of her secrets and that they, they, can, they can have this 
this trusting relationship if if Bond just finally lets his past go. And truly, that's one of the giant themes of the, the Daniel Craig Bond era, is letting the past go, letting the past die, and not letting it come back to haunt you. Uh, and I, I, yeah, honestly, I love their relationship. I think it is so much more fleshed out than it ever was in Spectre. I mean, the first five minutes of this movie, you get more emotional payoff with those two than I felt like we ever got throughout Spectre. Um, and that's a credit to Leia Sato. She is a uh, a terrific actress. I remember the first time I saw her was uh, Midnight in Paris, and she's just so charming. And uh, her ability to connect and go to a very resonant emotional place almost on command is unbelievable. Um, what really struck struck me in this movie, and I'll say it about really all the female characters, is that uh, they're given so much more emotional freedom. And with her in particular, her anguish is palpable. She does anguish really well. Uh, and she's, she's put through it in this movie uh, as a mom, as we discover. And uh, you think back to Spectre, and maybe this is a bit of a refresher for, for you, but um, as I said, Madeline Swan is the, the daughter of Mr. White, who was a, a Spectre agent and former Spectre agent. And she grew up in a very troubled household. And the entire movie starts with a, a flashback to Madeline's mother passed out on the couch, drunk as a skunk, getting getting Madeline to, to bring her her drink, her quote-unquote medicine. And her mother explaining that her father is a killer. And, and then for uh, the villain of this film, uh, Safin, to show up at their house and murder uh, her mother. And then Madeline defending herself and shooting uh, Safin and then running out onto the ice and escaping him. And she's had such a traumatic life. And even at the moments uh, she is most happy in this movie, you can kind of, uh, you can see her carrying that weight with her. And and only an actress like Leia Sado could uh, illustrate that. She's she's also a badass. She, she's, she's able to, to, to bring all of these colors uh, into one palette and, and paint a really beautiful character with them. Um, I think her chemistry with Daniel Craig in this movie was was better than Spectre, and you really do have to chalk that up to uh, just a better fleshed-out script, I think. I, I thought, uh, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, um, their final moments, and I'll talk about the ramifications and how I felt about what actually happened, but uh, I, I found myself uh, misty-eyed when uh, when they realize they can't be together, and Bond in turn, just like at the beginning of the movie where Madeline gives Bond permission to move on, figure out a way to move on from Vesper and everything that was holding him back, at the end of the movie, Bond gives Madeline and their daughter, Mathilde, permission to, to move on and have a good life and know that they are loved. And that is so profound, and it goes so beyond where you ever imagine a James Bond movie going. And 
it, it, it really does take performers like these two to, to elevate it to that level and to a believable level. Um, but I'll talk more about that ending in a bit. Um, so we've talked about those two. Uh, newcomer, uh, Lashana Lynch plays Nomi, uh, better known as the new 007. Yes, that is right. In, in the years since Bond left the service to go uh, be with Madeline, start a life with Madeline, uh, he was replaced as 007 by uh, Lashana Lynch's Nomi. And uh, number one, I love Lashana Lynch. We've talked about her a bit in our Marvel discussions. Uh, she plays Maria Rambo. She's she's really terrific. Uh, and what they've done with her here, she, she makes a great on-screen partner for Daniel Craig, but she's a great foil for the Bond character. Um, and what I mean by that is she has some headstrong characteristics but she does make it a point. It, it, at one point in the movie, she's she's talking talking with Ray Fiennes as M about uh, wanting to play things by the book, and and Ray Fiennes basically saying, uh, "Yes, your predecessor wasn't too fond on on following the rules of the road, as it were." Um, and and I she she's the new fresh air, and Bond is the tired old dinosaur, and she makes several references to that fact, and. Uh, I love I loved their initial meeting uh when when Bond is in uh in his self-imposed exile in Jamaica and and uh they go back to Bond's house and if this were any other Bond movie you you probably know where this is going they go into the bedroom and things happen there and <laughs> And do indeed they do go into the bedroom, but Nomi is uh, not interested in relations with Bond, and he quickly uh, discovers who she is, and and it, it's just kind of a great subversion of of expectation of of what usually happens, and this is what I mean by modernizing Bond a little bit, and uh, maybe knocking some sense into him a little bit, and uh, Lashana Lynch is really great at that, and uh, sh- she's a kick-ass stunt performer too she she looks great in all the action sequences and uh, like i said she and bond their interplay is is really enjoyable i mentioned uh the villain uh, rami malek plays lucifer safin and i'm going to start with a complaint here he's not used nearly enough and in a roundabout way that's uh, a big compliment that I'm paying him. Uh, we don't get nearly uh, enough of him. We get we get him at the beginning of the movie, and we we discover his uh, you know, how how he relates to to Madeline. We find out he he's the one who rescued her, which and then he doesn't show up. He shows up again very sporadically throughout the movie. Which fine, I get it. You don't want to overexpose the villain and and perhaps ruin his mystique. But beyond the pre-title sequence, uh, a couple of little interludes, and the big finale, we really don't get a ton of insight into to his motivation. Um, and I, I'll say it, though. I, I, I think Rami Malek is uh, one of the best actors working today. And I remember when they cast him, I was so excited because he he so fits what they're going for specifically with the the Bond villains of the Craig era, uh, Christoph Waltz, um, Javier Bardem, Mads Mikkelsen. Like, he's he's 
right in there with them uh, in terms of just how sinister he can be and while at the same time being so incredibly interesting to watch and unpredictable. It's the unpredictability. And and this this guy, Safin, he's decidedly more odd than his counterparts. Like they, they have their their quirks and mannerisms, but he's he's just an odd duck. And you, you I mean you you do come to realize why that is. I mean he's completely blinded by rage at the, the the death of his entire family at the hands of Spectre, but uh, but it's this stillness and really unsettling, just calm. He has kind of a serenity to him. He's very at peace with what he's he's doing in life, and um, and that makes him very formidable. Like he's a, he's a hard nut to crack, and Bond finds that out the hard way. Um, I, but I, I do think we could have used a little more insight into into why he personally had it out for for Bond and and what what his obsession with Madeline is beyond saving her at the beginning. And make no mistake, we do get we do get some insight into where his head is at psychologically, uh, especially in the scene where he comes to visit Madeline for the first time since that pre-title sequence when she was a kid. And uh, he explains to her that when you save someone, it's almost as if they belong to you. That's his deranged psychological explanation for for wanting to be near her and and this almost sick fascination and love he has, if we can call it that, love he has for her. And and I would have just liked to explore that a bit more because I think it's a really deranged and interesting concept that we haven't necessarily seen from a Bond villain, at least not recently. Uh, this this idea of ownership over somebody. Um, but I, I thought he he did a, a bang-up job. I think he and Daniel Craig are, are such magnetic presences together. Their, their final confrontation, it was, I mean, it's brutal. I mean, Bond snaps his arm in half. I could have used more there. I could have used a a uh, a more climactic interaction between the two of them, but uh, I was not expecting what indeed did happen, and and that uh, Safin is so sick that uh, he's decided that if I can't be with her, then neither can you. And I'll get to this when we we talk specifically about the ending, but just. Um, a, re- a really fantastic performance by Rami Malek and really unsettling. I think it's the the best word I can sum it up with, unsettling. Uh, speaking of another unsettling character, uh, Christoph Waltz returns as Ernst Stavro Blofeld, the head of Spectre, who we are introduced to in the last film, Spectre. And uh, in the years since Spectre, he's been incarcerated uh in London, under maximum security, very Hannibal Lecter style. Uh, but we discover he's been running Spectre from inside the prison through the use of a bionic eye, which, you know, I, let's not dig too deeply into that. I mean, it's 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 a Bondism. It's a, uh, it's a convenient way for, for Blofeld to still be 
active in the world. Um, but uh, I have to say, when Bond goes to see him to kind of figure out what the hell is going on with Safin's big scheme, when he goes to see him in the prison, that scene between the two of them, uh, much like Bond and Madeline is better than their interactions in the entirety of Spectre. I thought it was chilling. Uh, from the moment uh, we see Blofeld kind of turn the corner, his his cell moves on that kind of conveyor belt, and it turns the corner and then slowly starts coming down the hallway, and he's masked in shadows, and uh, and the music begins this pulsating beat. And uh, it's just... It's just creepy and you start to feel claustrophobic and and Madeline begs to get out uh we we know why that is um but here we see Christoph Waltz at his very best and and I felt like out of all the things that kind of rubbed me the wrong way inspector he he was not utilized to his full potential his full glorious understated but sinister potential and here he was and what makes him so scary is he does know what buttons to press with bond and as we discovered in the last movie he's been at the root of all of bond's suffering since vesper and uh here he you you see him just enjoying it again and he doesn't care that uh specter has effectively been destroyed and all he cares about is making James's life a living hell because he, as he perceives it, Bond did that to him by kind of replacing him in, in their father's eyes. And the, the, their interaction here is is really tense. And you almost see some, some pity come out of Bond for, it, for, for Blofeld. Uh, you can call it brotherly pity, but... Uh, but when he find when he kind of figures out he's not going to get what he wants from Blofeld, and Blofeld has basically told him that Madeline didn't betray you. Uh, I just wanted to make it look that way, so uh, so you would suffer, and it sends Bond over the edge because he, he ruined his life. He friggin' ruined his life, and and Bond chokes him, and. And it it does borderline into the the cheesiness a little bit when Bond grabs Blofeld by the throat and he's screaming, die, Blofeld, die. And that's actually taken from the Ian Fleming novel, You Only Live Twice, when he's killing Blofeld. So it was pulled from the page. It just sounds maybe a little silly in real life, but but tense uh, nonetheless. Um... I, I wish we could have had more Christoph Waltz in, in these movies before his untimely demise, because I just think so highly of him. He was made to play that character. I think he's come the closest to the original Donald Pleasance, who stands head and shoulders as the best Blofeld, but I think Christoph Waltz has the right type of gravitas and then quiet, understated menace to really pull the character off. Another new character, uh, Ana de Armas, plays Paloma. And I'll say the same thing about her that I said about Safin. More, please. More. Oh, my gosh. She's uh, she's so terrific. And if, if you've never been exposed to Ana de Armas before No Time to Die, go look at uh, Knives Out, the film she did with Daniel Craig a couple years ago. Uh, such a 
talented, talented woman. And um, here's another female character in this movie that subverts the typical Bond woman trope um, in a really fun and exciting and kick-ass way. So when Bond first meets her uh, through uh, Felix Leiter, uh, she's kind of talking about how inexperienced she is and and she's very, very nervous and she's only done three weeks training. And then when the shit hits the fan, <laughs> she's just absolutely kicks total ass and is such a great and efficient trained killer. And um, and Bond is he's sincerely impressed. And, and after all the shooting is done, he says, you were brilliant. <laughs> and she's like, oh, thank you. Uh, but there's another great moment, like right before um, they they start on the mission, they go down into this little cellar, and uh, Paloma tells her to tells him to start taking off his clothes and to put on this suit, and and Bond thinks she's coming on to him, and she's like, no, this is just kind of part of the plan. So there's a nice little subversion of of uh, Bond not necessarily getting what he wants in that moment. Um, but then it develops, they develop genuine respect, and that's. That's uh, kind of cool to see. Um, but I think she's just so charming. She balances the the quirkiness and the humor with uh, some really amazing physical skills. And uh, I would have loved to see her uh, have more of a through line through this movie. Um, we have M, Q, Moneypenny, Tanner. We'll call them the MI64. They're kind of Bond support staff played respectively by Ray Fiennes, Ben Whishaw, Naomi Harris, and Rory Kinnear. Uh, so great to see them have an expanded role. I felt like Ray Fiennes' M really started to approach the characterization similar to that of uh, Bernard Lee, who played the very first M and was M through from the 1960s through the mid-1980s. And he captures some of his, his gruffness, his impatience... He's he's just he's just uh, an imp- an impatient guy and and always looking to scold somebody. So it was nice to kind of see Ray Fiennes uh, add more of that color now that he's kind of a seasoned head of MI6 following Judy Dench. And whereas Judy Dench kind of took on the maternal role to Daniel Craig's Bond, you have Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes is M. Mallory as as we. We, we we know his name from Skyfall. I don't know. There there's there's a brotherly element, but there's also a paternal element, and uh, it's really great when they when they're reunited, and they both acknowledge that they've screwed up in the past and have made some big boo boos. M made a big boo boo here as far as uh, covering up the existence of a secret MI6 base, much less the development of a chemical agent. Uh, and a, a project that could be turned into a weapon of mass destruction. But it, it's fun seeing uh, Bond and M kind of work the problem together. Uh, Q, played by Ben Whishaw, uh, terrific. We got to see more of him. Uh, he was given more emotional stakes. He's right there with Bond at the, at the conclusion of his mission. He's in his earpiece. He's in his head telling him kind of what to do. And uh, he's there when the decision is made to... Uh, to not leave the island when the missiles are launched. And what what was also kind of neat about Q is <laughs> Bond and Moneypenny show up on his doorstep 
wanting his expertise and help in this mission and he's setting the table for dinner and he's got his hairless cat and uh, he's getting ready for a date uh, with a gentleman caller from the sound of it and um, it was nice to to finally get a window into to Q's personal life it's a fun little wrinkle for his character and and same with Money Penny she's old faithful um, and what I've loved about Naomi Harris is iteration of money penny is she st- she started out in the field and uh we get to see that she you know she she was legitimately pretty good at her job shooting james bond notwithstanding from skyfall uh but she's not just a secretary she's uh she's an asset to mi6 and uh, uh she's given emotional beats in a farewell to to james bond in this movie um and same with Tanner, played by Rory Kinnear. He's he's always been this straight-laced guy, but always very uh, appreciative of Bond's skills. Um, so it's so really wonderful to to have those characters fleshed out a bit. Um, Jeffrey Wright returns as CIA agent Felix Leiter. He he went missing between movies. We saw him first in Casino Royale, and then we see him again in Quantum of Solace. Disappeared in Skyfall Inspector, and uh, now he's back. Uh, I wish he had a role in those movies, um, and that's really because when we reach the tragic point we reach in this movie, where Felix is betrayed by uh, Billy Magnuson's character and and shot and then dies in Bond's arms as they're both drowning uh, on this rig. I wanted to feel this more than I I ended up feeling it. But Bond has another quote-unquote family member taken from him. He has someone he cares about taken from him. And he he thinks of Felix as a brother, but I just couldn't quite get there because it's been so long since we saw them together. And it just, it felt like uh, maybe we hadn't earned that moment. But that aside, Jeffrey Wright is, <laughs> I mean, we've been, uh, Alyssa Daniel and I have been talking what if for the last nine weeks, and, and Jeffrey Wright has been at the center of that series. And he's just such a, a really great actor and uh, makes a, a really uh, believable and dependable Felix in the Daniel Craig era. Uh, he was the right counterpart uh, for these movies. And uh, I loved their interactions in Cuba, their back and forth. Uh, they kind of let their hair down a little bit at the at the bar and are, are, are playing a game. And uh, and, it, and it was tragic to, to see Felix go that way in the same way Mathis went and you know all the women in Bond's life and he's another in a long line of people taken from him and uh, I just wish I there'd been a little more uh, meat on the bone there in terms of developing that relationship so the payoff was better but uh, kudos to Jeffrey Wright uh, Billy Magnuson as Logan Ash the the note I took on him was stop smiling, you dick. He he turns on a dime. We we first see him as a crazy CIA fanboy of of James Bond, and uh, and then he turns out to be a real rat. And I personally loved the way he was uh, flattened by the the jeep that uh, that uh, Bond pushes the jeep onto him. That was a good way for him to go. Good riddance, burn in hell, sir. Uh, but Billy Magnuson was great. Um, so that's kind of the, 
how I felt about the characters, uh, I'm going to outline a couple of scenes in particular that uh, just r- really uh, resonated with me. The The pre-title sequence and that, that being the, the sequence before the theme song comes in and the music video montage was chilling. Unpredictable, chilling, uh, roller coaster comes to mind. And that starts, as I mentioned at the top, with the recollection of Madeline's past and being hunted by Safin and then falling under the ice when she's running from him after he has somehow resuscitated himself. Uh, and as she's pulled out of the ice by him, she's then we, we then cut to grown-up Madeline in Matera, Italy, with Bond, and she's coming out of the water and really unsettling and it sort of sets the stage for for what happens uh, at Vesper's tomb when the bomb goes off and Bond comes back to Madeline at the hotel and is certain that uh, she led Spectre there to kill him and uh, which then leads into the, the unreal car chase in the classic Bond DB5, the Aston Martin DB5. Holy cow. Um, I was talking about at the beginning a little bit, the cinematography here of the race through Matera and and how they're really able to build tension. And again, you're able to see this sprawling sequence unfold. You're never kind of confused about what, what's happening. It's not disorienting in a bad way. Uh that that in the uh, the particular part in the sequence where the car gets stopped in the square and it's just being rained down on with gunfire and uh, shotguns and and you're wondering what's going through Bond's head at this moment. Madeline is absolutely freaking out, and it almost seems like Bond is resigned to die right now. That's what I got from it. That we're five minutes into this movie, he thinks Madeline has just betrayed him just like Vesper. He thought Vesper had way back when. And I think he's ready to die right now. And she looks in his eyes and just pleads with him, and and he just whispers, okay, flips a switch, the guns come out of the headlights, and I just got full body chills as he slams down on the gas and does a donut of destruction as he escapes the square leading to another great chase sequence and uh, and then ending at the train station where he puts Madeline on the train. Your heart just, just aches and breaks at the same time uh, as the train starts to pull away and, and she's running down through the carriages as Bond is on the platform and you slowly see him fade away and and it melts into the Billie Eilish theme song no time to die and the sequence is it's exhilarating uh it's really unlike a lot of the pre-title bond sequences which are uh, of course very heavy on big action set pieces but there's not a whole lot of them that that cash in on emotional weight and this one was very unique in that sense and that's the portion of the movie i think i was i know i was thinking about uh, as I left the theater, I that that part stayed with me uh, for sure. And what's more, the very specific use of a certain music cue when when Bond and Madeline are driving through 
Matera at the very beginning, very much in love, very much enjoying their, their time away. Uh, we hear a rendition of We Have All the Time in the World, which was the theme song for Honor Majesty's Secret Service starring George Lazenby. And the parallels between that movie and this one are very interesting and No Time to Die very much feels like a spiritual successor to that movie. And if you haven't seen it, Bond basically meets his wife in that movie, Tracy, becomes Tracy Bond. And at the end of that film, she is murdered by Blofeld in a drive-by shooting. And as she dies in his arms, he he looks up at, I don't remember, I think it was a police officer who came by to help them, and he basically says, it'll be all right, we have all the time in the world. And he's just broken. And I find it very interesting that they went to that emotional place in this movie as well, and really for the first time. And that music cue, we have all the time in the world. Like, you you hear it several times throughout the film. And uh, it really makes its presence known at the end. Um, when Bond echoes that to, to Madeline and, and tells her, you have all the time in the world. I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about it. Uh so I loved that inclusion. I'm, I'm going to be thinking about that pre-title sequence for a long, long time. Um, Cuba. Everything in Cuba. I loved the Spectre party. It, it felt very, and, it, and it's because it's in Cuba, but it felt very 1950s. It felt very vintage Bond. It felt like somewhere you would you would have seen Sean Connery hanging out. And, uh, and I felt the same way about Jamaica, honestly, too. Uh, the color palette, the, the, the deep purples and blues, the nightclub. Uh, you, got, you got a real sense for um, Cuban culture, and but we've been to Cuba in, in the Bond films before, and of course we've been to Jamaica, but what, what struck me about the Jamaica sequence was actually getting a real feel for some Jamaican culture, uh, which gets glossed over for the sake of, of plot and some of the early James Bond movies, but it was nice to see Bond kind of blending in with with uh, Jamaican culture and hearing their music, and uh, I thought that was really wonderful. Um, yeah, the, the, the fight scene in the, in the, the bar in Cuba was uh, <laughs> so, so well done, and uh, I'll, I'll talk about Hans Zimmer's score in a sec, but uh, I love how... Uh, you have the Spanish guitar playing the James Bond theme as as they're beating the crap out of everybody, and it was a really frenetic and 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 fun take on the Bond theme during that fight. Um, another scene I, I mentioned the prison scene with Blofeld again the the menace. Uh, it was just very unnerving. Um, there there are several moments in this movie that are best described as unnerving. Um, that that's at the top of the list. Uh, skipping ahead, and this is going to be one of those these polarizing moments, I think. But uh, when uh, when Bond travels to Madeline's house, uh, you know, after after everything that happens at the prison, and he goes up to Norway to where to where her childhood home essentially, and meets her child, which we then discover is his child. But the, the couple of scenes there where he uh, he's being 
as I put down in my notes, dad bond. And there's a great scene in the kitchen where he's cutting an apple and he gives it to her and he's kind of looking to her for approval and asks her if it's any good. And it's just another moment that we've never gotten with James Bond. And I don't know if we needed it, but as far as Daniel Craig's character arc, it, it, it just gives you the, the feel goods to uh, to see him in some form of contentment and not under a state of duress. And having these quiet moments before the eventual buildup to the climax of this movie was, was, was really great. And I've seen some critics complain that this is where the movie started to drag. And um, I, 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 I get that. But I'm also really glad we had these moments. The chase in the Norwegian forest is is really great. Uh, there's a sequence where Bond drives the car just into the mist of the forest. And it has that kind of horror feel to it. Bond leaves Madeline and Matilda alone inside this little shack. And he's creeping around, distracting, trying to distract people by shooting the gun into the air. And, uh, and then Safin shows up at the at the the cabin and and then takes the two of them and again unnerving really starts to amp up the tension as we race towards the end and speaking of that ending the the whole last 30 45 minutes on this volcanic island is really intense uh from from start to finish, and I'll, I'll skip a, a lot of the action, but um, when Bond confronts Safin, and Safin has Matilde next to him, and every time Bond makes some kind of movement, you, you feel Safin's grip tighten on this girl, and... When again, whenever a child is involved, it's it's just a no go. It's uh, it's really uncomfortable, and we see Bond quite panicked. And in fact, he starts begging with Saf and tells him he will do whatever he wants to to make sure she is spared. He he goes into the fetal position, and this is obviously a ruse. But uh, just what Safin says to Matilda said that. You know, look to your father here, girl. I mean, l- look what power can do. And ooh, ooh, I, 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 I didn't like that, but a, a great moment for amping up the personal stakes for Bond on top of the international mission. And then, really, what we'll call the final ascent sequence when Bond has to go open the uh, silo doors so when the missiles are launched from the the British warship they can actually destroy this base. Bond fights his way up the stairway and what I believe is probably cleverly edited somewhere and I need to see it again to see where but a one shot up this staircase fighting just brutally fighting Safin's men in this shootout that just hurts. It's very customary of the Daniel Craig movies to have these fight sequences that you just feel his pain. And, um, oh, it was so excellently shot. And I remember just gripping my chair uh, watching this unfold. And 
uh, he gets to the top and he's able to open the silo doors. And and then, of course, you have the final confrontation with Safan, which uh, Bond takes a, a beating and he gets shot several times. And and this is where the movie either... Uh, it's, it's really near this moment that the movie either won you over or lost you. And we quickly learn in this moment that Safin has infected Bond with these nanobots that are coded to Madeline and Mathilde's DNA. So if Bond were to touch them, they would die. And Safin too has been infected with the, with them. And he gives this chilling line to Bond about, basically, if I, if I can't be with them, you can't be with them. And Bond kills him in cold blood. As Bond is trying to leave, he discovers that the silo doors have been closed again, and he has to climb back up the this ladder, back up these stairs to reopen them before the missiles hit, and we're, the, the, we're minutes away at this point. And Bond essentially, in this moment, makes the decision to die. If he can't be with Madeline and Mathilde, he's okay dying now. And he he gets in his earpiece with Q and asks Q to put, you know, patch Madeline through so he can talk to her. And as he's climbing the stairs, uh, after finally reopening the silo doors and knowing he doesn't have enough time to leave the island, he tells her, you have all the time in the world and go go live your life. Go go make a better life with, with, with our daughter and... It's it's achingly beautiful. It, it it could have been it could have been read one of two ways. Either you absolutely love this moment, or you were just infuriated by it. And and really, this is the ending Daniel Craig's Bond deserved. It was never going to end completely happy for him. I I think we can all come to that conclusion. It was his life has been so twisted and tortured that it could not have ended any other way. But what what he does get in this moment is that sense of contentment he's been chasing. This is the first time he's content. And he's, ironically, he's been shot several times. He's about to be blown up. And he's free of pain. And th- that's that's really profound. And that Bond finally learned the lesson that um, it's okay to let go. And I'm I'm actually really thrilled it ended this way. Of course, I w- I'm not happy they killed James Bond, but um, as we all know, James Bond is not dead, the character. But this felt like the natural conclusion for for James, and uh, the the last exchange he and Madeline share is they both end up okay, and and that's amazing, and that that leads into. The final scene of of Madeline driving, you know, little Matilde through Matera, and we then hear we have all the time in the world again, and this time it's the full throated Louis Armstrong version. And Madeline says to Matilde, "I want to tell you a story about a man named Bond, James Bond." And the movie closes as they're driving down a tunnel which looks like the gun barrel that is customary at the beginning of every Bond film. And I, 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 uh, 
I can't get over how much I I I liked that. Um, and I and I've 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 read that some people just really didn't go for that, and that it it uh it was not their idea of Bond, and I get that. But uh, again, it all boils down to what was right for Daniel Craig's version of the character, and I think this is the only way it could have ended. And that's that. Like I, I, I'm I'm a big fan of, of of how they've wrapped this up. Admittedly, it uh, th- this movie uh, on the whole, in terms of the themes it tries to tackle and the things that actually happen in it, it is a bit jarring, especially coming off Spectre, which felt uh unfinished, you know, rough around the edges and and not as full of life as as this one was. So so yeah, some some of this, and and then the fact Bond is a a dad. I mean, you really have to just buy into it, or you're gonna hate it. And that falls on the actors to to sell us on it, and they they do, in my opinion. As far as things that, it's not a perfect movie by any means. I, I it's it it has some questionable items in it. Um. I've I've hinted around it, but you know, assuming we've all seen it, we understand that the the main kind of gist of this is this this project Heracles, as it's called, which is a nanobot project in which you can imprint somebody's DNA. And this is my understanding: you can imprint somebody's DNA onto these nanobots, and they then infect people's bloodstreams and cell, you know, uh, blood cells. You're basically carrying a pathogen that could kill a specific person if these nanobots have been coated with that DNA. I get it. I, I actually think it's super interesting. And funny enough, coincidentally, I was reading today about how there is kind of a burgeoning market for nanobots and mi- like microscopic nanobots and some the size of seeds that they want to use to to measure climate or or crop yield or i mean you name it so the the nanobot thing would probably sound far-fetched but that's the world we live in and that's kind of what's funny about the bond movies is that technology is kind of catching up like it's not crazy anymore the idea of lasers like the u.s military is actively working with lasers anti-naval weapons and uh so yeah, the the nanobot thing doesn't bother me. I it, it gets a little convoluted as the story goes along, um, and I don't know if it was a pacing thing or an editing thing. Um, I did find myself confused a bit, but by the time we got to the end, it made sense to me. So by the time Safin says, "You know, you're infected," you know what that means. And uh, so that works. Um, the movie does, it does lean really heavily into the pathos. And what I mean by that is th- there are so many emotional stakes. I feel like they could have used a bit more of the bombast from from previous Bond movies. Uh, again, I, I love a character drama. I think it was about time we went there with with Daniel Craig's Bond, but I I could have used one or two more of those uh, those Bondian moments instead of 
some of the more quiet, understated stuff. But that's a personal preference, and I, I don't think it derails the movie. Um, I haven't talked about Hans Zimmer's score yet. I will say he he did a great job. I thought he he really captured the appropriate tone while also maintaining that Hans Zimmer feel, which we all know and and love. And it's very percussive. You could hear elements of Dark Knight in this movie. You could hear some inception in this movie. Um, my biggest complaint about the scores for recent Bond movies, really since Casino Royale, is their reluctance to use the Bond theme in its full-throated glory. And David Arnold, uh, who did the Pierce Brosnan films and then did Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace as well, but notably in the Pierce Brosnan movies, you got the James Bond theme in its full glory whenever he was doing something really crazy. And for whatever reason, well, not for whatever reason, we kind of know why. In the Daniel Craig movies, they kind of stripped it back as they were peeling back the layers of the character and trying to fulfill the mission of these movies, which was to subvert many of the Bond tropes. So the the less of the music they used, they felt it would be more impactful when it was used, and I un- I completely understand that. But we're now really four movies removed since the last time we really, really heard it, and I was really hoping in this one we'd get just a blaring horn section and and just we get the theme song in the movie, which, again, personal preference... But uh, Hans Zimmer did uh, an amazing job with the score. I think he scored the action scenes in a really, really great way. Uh, again, that percussive Dark Knight feel with, with the brass interwoven with it. Uh, the music for Final Ascent, which that is the the title of it on the soundtrack, uh, is the final cue when, when Bond is in the earpiece with Madeline as he's about to to die and and that is heartbreakingly beautiful and made better when you see it uh in the theater with the picture um so good on Hans Zimmer I think he I think he really captured uh a lot of the the heart of John Barry's old scores and then and then some of David Arnold he kind of took mixed and matched from from all over and again he he chose a couple of cues from Honor Majesty's Secret Service, We Have All the Time in the World, and then there was another bit uh, where Bond and M are, are talking. Uh, they're along the, the banks of the Thames River in London, and uh, they're discussing uh, the mission, and you hear a little bit of the Honor Majesty's Secret Service theme, which, again, it's it's just strengthening the ties as a spiritual successor to that movie. Um, a really nice touch. Some other little odds and ends that I really liked. Uh, when we're in MI6, there there's a, a scene in the hallway, and you see the portraits of all the former M's. You see Bernard Lee and Judy Dench, and uh, that that was really nice. Uh, don't get caught up in the canon of it all. It's just uh, it's it's nice to to see them nodding to to the past um, while also trying to forget it. Um, uh, when Bond is back in London for the first time, he gets inside an Aston Martin V8 Vantage, uh, which has the same license plate 
as when the character drove it in The Living Daylights. Uh, that was Timothy Dalton's first James Bond movie. So another nice little uh, technological nod, uh, or rather motor vehicle nod, to, to James Bond past. I loved that I mentioned the quote-unquote gun barrel scene you see at the very end of the movie when Madeline and Matilda are driving through the tunnel. There's another great moment when uh, when Bond is making his way through Safin's base where he turns a corner and he's standing down this long corridor and, and fires off his gun as if he was looking down the gun barrel again. Very, very cool. Uh, loved that. Um, one little nitpicky thing at the beginning of the movie, they finally put the gun barrel sequence back at the beginning of the movie where it belongs. And for whatever reason, the Daniel Craig movies have kind of refused to do that. Casino Royale had a very cool rendition of it, but the others didn't. Uh, I liked it here. I miss the blood uh, creeping down the screen when Bond shoots off the gun. Again, personal preference you know, I, I know we're trying to pave a new path, but I would I would have liked to have kept with that tradition. But yeah, all in all, uh, I mean, I could go on for for two freaking hours about this movie, and uh, I don't think any of you are interested in that. Uh, but if you are, yeah, hit the three of us up and uh, and in our DMs, and and we can we can absolutely talk about this movie. Um, before I wrap this up, I do think it's worth noting that yes. Daniel Craig's Bond is dead, and he is dead, dead. Uh, but in, in the uh, if you stay to the end of the credits, and this happens in every James Bond movie, but usually they don't put it at the very end. But at the very end, we get the little uh, postscript that James Bond will return, and uh, we knew that that uh, Barbara Broccoli and. Michael Wilson will be selecting a new actor to play James Bond. And there have been rumors for years, uh, especially uh, after Daniel Craig made comments, I believe when he was done filming Skyfall, that he, he was either Skyfall or Spectre, I can't remember, where he said he was going to slash his wrists if he had to do another. Which uh, he has since explained, and I do believe him, that he was just exhausted and people are always asking about the next one and poor bastard has has absolutely been through the ringer but um there will indeed be a new James Bond and we've been speculating about who that would be forever and as recently as the the premiere a couple weeks ago Barbara Broccoli said they would not start the search until 2022 but there are a few names that have popped up you know, Vegas runs odds on them. and uh, But a few of the names that have come up are Richard Madden. You'd know him from Game of Thrones, The Bodyguard. Uh, I am I am all in on Richard Madden, by the way. Uh, uh, Cillian Murphy, more an unconventional Bond, uh, at least from a look standpoint. Uh, phenomenal actor. Idris Elba. He's been rumored for six, seven years now. He would make an excellent Bond. I think the only issue you run into there, if you consider it an issue, is that he's now Daniel Craig's age, or just about. He had, He's over 50, and uh, you could certainly start there with him, but um, I wonder how much he'd have in the tank, but who am I to doubt Idris Elba? Tom Hiddleston, he seems like a natural fit as well. 
and then Tom Hardy, which uh, I think that would be Christopher Nolan's pick if he gets a Bond movie. And uh, I think the only sticking point there is, is he too much like Daniel Craig? Does he have too much the, the, the roughness about him, the, the roughness and the gruffness? Um, roughness and the gruffness. But Tom Hardy can do anything, so that would be amazing. Um, if you were asking me, and I know you're not asking me, but if you were asking me what and where should Bond go now that the Daniel Craig era is over and we've seemingly ended the interconnected portion of the Bond proceedings, I would take these movies, the next one, and I would set it back in the 1960s. And plenty of people have raised this as a possibility. But I think to give space to what we've just witnessed and to differentiate it, for the first time ever, I'd throw Bond back in time and make it a period piece, make it a period spy piece like The Man from Uncle or uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It'd be really great to see Bond back in a Cold War setting, and I would make Christopher Nolan the director. Uh, one, because he's done every other genre, so why not let him do Bond? And two, he stated... He loves James Bond and would love to do a movie. He just wants to do it with his own actor. So give it to him and let him make a badass 1960s James Bond film. And my pick would be Richard Madden. That's just my preference. I've, If you've seen The Bodyguard, you know what this man is capable of. Um, that's where I think they should go. Uh, look, I'm going to miss Daniel Craig. Yeah, Pierce Brosnan, as I said near the beginning, was the Bond we grew up with, and he will always have the distinction of being my Bond, our Bond. But uh, I got to tell you, when from the moment I saw Daniel Craig in Casino Royale to his final moments in No Time to Die this past week, ah oh, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss I'm gonna miss this rendition of the character and. Uh, I think all of them will will age well over time. Um, And I can't wait to see this movie again. But yeah, I would just say thank you, Daniel Craig. (laughs) Because as other franchises come and go and kind of ebb and flow with time, James Bond has always been there. And I suspect it always will be. As, As troubled and chaotic as the world is, there will always be space for James Bond. And I think that was the message they were trying to convey uh and daniel craig did it beautifully with class and grace and strength gravitas and it was a pleasure to be witness to um so yeah my my final thoughts on no time to die i loved it uh i love its ambition i love its climax i i love the stakes a bit overlong a little convoluted and it's controversial let's be honest um, I'm sure some of you listening probably didn't like it, and and I would love to have that discussion. Um, glad to have seen this movie. Glad it exists. Can't wait to see it again. As for our future programming, fear not. Alyssa and Daniel will be back with us in a couple days. We're going to give you what uh, we still owe you, which is the finale to What If, the absolutely bonkers finale to What If. Uh, so the three of us will be back together to do that. Uh, we'll be talking Star Wars Visions here soon. We're going to do kind of a giant episode for that and talk about which episodes we liked, uh, if not all of them. And um, The Eternals shows up on our doorstep in November. We got Spider-Man in December, uh, Book of Boba Fett at the end of December. So buckle up, 
and stick with us because we've got a lot coming down the pipe and you don't want to miss it. So stay right here. So as always, I'm Dino Nicandros. I, I guess I better go pay uh, Alyssa and Daniel's ransom now because we, we need them back desperately. We really do. This is Inside the Tauntaun, a podcast in the multiverse of fandom. May the force be with you. Always. Inside the Tauntaun podcast, please like and subscribe.